0: Father, there are times we're so slow to reach out to those around us, God. So slow just to even drop a text or just say hello and just take time to listen to someone, God. I pray, Father, you just put someone on our hearts and minds, Lord, today or this week that we might just be able to say hi to or drop a message or arrange a meet up with, Lord. I pray, Father, um, for your grace in that, God, for your guiding, Lord, for your love, Lord, within us um, that unites us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that wherever two or three are gathered together, Lord, in your name, that you're there in the midst of them, Lord. Um, And that means regardless, God, of whether we're many or few in number, Lord, you're always here with us, Lord. And your Holy Spirit is with us. And that means the creator of the universe, the almighty God, is here right now. And Lord, we're here for you, Lord. We're here to hear from you, God. We're here because we need you, Lord. Um, And we can't live this life without you. God, I just pray for any who are struggling right now, Lord, for those who are just going through difficult times, who might be having difficult family situations, um, difficult situations at work, or just having a hard time in life right now, Lord. I just pray for your hand upon them, God. Um, Again, I pray you'd put them on our hearts, Lord, for us to reach out to them. I pray they'd also reach out to people, too, and know that there are people who love them and care for them and want to listen and um, help in any way possible, Lord, even if that's just being able to listen and pray, God. I pray you'd help each of us in our walks with you, Lord. It's so easy to either make things so routine they just become a habit without thinking of it, or it's so easy just to neglect you, God. I pray, Lord, we wouldn't fall into either of those um, categories, God, Lord, but we'd just be seeking you at all times, Lord. We'd want that authentic relationship with you, Jesus. We don't want a set of rules. We don't want um rituals. We don't want tradition. We don't even just want... um uh, p- purely fellowship, Lord, without you, we want you, Lord, we want jesus, we want we want Jesus, would you help us in that God, Lord, we just think of the world at this difficult time, God, as we 're coming out of lockdown as there 's lots of problems still, God, um, as there 's um, attacks on cities in various places, we think of Afghanistan recently, um, and all the people there, God, how they must be struggling, Lord, um, I just pray Father for um, peace somehow lord i know when we pray for that we're really asking for you to come back jesus um but we know lord that these are all birth pains and um signs lord that we are coming towards the end um and lord would you help us to be those who are awake at this time would you help us to be those who are prepared at this time um would you show us more what that means lord um and would you fill us with your spirit to help us god lord we need you lord would you please help us god Amen.
1: Today, we are following on from our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 14, uh, the, the last 10 verses, uh, verse 25 to 35. So if you've got a Bible, and you can turn to Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. Um, and before I actually read it out, the last verse has these words. It says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And I, I think Jesus usually says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, when it's something tough that we've got to listen to, something tough that maybe normally we'd switch our ears off to. We wouldn't normally want to listen. And so what we're going to read here is, is tough. Jesus knew it was tough, otherwise he wouldn't have said, keep your ears open. And so as we, uh, as we read it, we've just asked the Lord to help us f- figure out what he's calling us to and how he wants us to change and become more like him. All right, let's read. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So last week, uh, John talked about uh, how Jesus was kind of in confrontation and teaching the people at uh, the Pharisees in their own homes, um, and often these Pharisees were very rich and they used to invite wealthy people to stay. Uh, and, and so this week, suddenly it's completely changed. It's now large crowds were travelling with Jesus. And where, where is Jesus travelling? He's travelling towards Jerusalem. He talked about that at the end of chapter 13. He talked about how he's heading to Jerusalem, where he will end up dying. Not, not that people really understood that, but that's what he meant. And, uh, and so last week you could say he was talking to those rich people, those prideful people who think they uh, are are good, that they think they're in, that they think the everything revolves around them, you could say. Um, and instead, now he's talking to the large crowd. He's talking to, to you could say, the common people, the average Joe, the average man, the average woman. And uh, he, he wants to speak to the crowd because they've, they've been following him uh, for a while now. We often see him, you know, chapters or or passages starting with a large crowd were following him and he was performing miracles, casting out demons and teaching with authority. So we often see that. But as he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, he wants to turn to the crowds and he wants to tell them something really important. He wants to tell them the difference between being just a a member of the crowd, just a crowd follower, and being a, a disciple of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus. You could say, sometimes we talk about herd mentality, when if you're, you know, let's say you're at a big football game and everyone's cheering along, and I've been to at least two football games, and that's what happens. That's, um, you know, everyone's cheering along, I you and end up picking up the songs really quickly. It's easy to support the team. I might not know any of the names of the people playing, but I can seem to get really passionate about it. I can seem to get really involved. Um, so that crowd mentality, that herd mentality that you can get, from being around other people. And it's easy sometimes when we're at church to be in that herd mentality. It's easy to say, I love Jesus, when you're surrounded by other people who say the same thing. But we know that it's not just about saying, I love Jesus on a Sunday morning, but it's about following Jesus. It's about seeing him and about following a person, not following the crowd. Are we in a herd mentality? Are we just a sheep or are we listening to the shepherd? And in a real way, Jesus is saying to these people, as you know, I can imagine, because the way it says it, it says, large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. So I'm imagining he's, he's leading the crowd. and The crowd are behind him. And he turns to them and says, okay, you're going to keep following me. You're going to keep following me towards Jerusalem. There are some things you need to know. There are some things you need to know. And then he says... These, on the surface, crazy words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate? Hate? No, it should say love there. This must be a bad translation or a bad version. Surely it should say, if anyone comes to me and does not love his father and mother, that should... Hate? No, no, that's what it says, even in the Greek. That's what it says. So what does, what does this hate mean? Does it mean that we should send angry texts to our family? Make them really not like us, make us really know that they hate them? Or is it the other side? Is it that in comparison to Jesus, we love him? In comparison to Jesus, we love Jesus so much, it looks like we hate our parents and our family. Let me explain. When I was 16 and 17 years old, I had a girlfriend, my now wife Katie. Katie. And uh, I think back to some of the parties or the youth groups and the things that we went to, and I think that probably I spent a lot of time with her and I didn't spend much time with my other friends. Was I investing in my normal friendships? No, I was staying up late talking to my girlfriend. It's it's the only thing I was really thinking about at the time. I was so in love, which is lovely. Um, I was so in love and uh, it was such a nice time that in comparison, I probably was ignoring my parents a little bit. I was probably ignoring my family a little bit. And it's very easy when we're so in love with something to start to not listen and pay attention to uh, others. And maybe that wasn't right with my my girlfriend Katie. Maybe I should have been more aware of family and friends, but hopefully they understood. If not, I'm sorry to my family and friends. Um, But compared to Jesus, the Son of God, God made flesh, the one who took our sins away, the one who loves us dearly, the one who gives us joy. Yeah, in comparison to him, I expect it would maybe look like I hated other people. Should be a verse on the screen. Luke 16, verse 13. No one can... Is it on the screen? No one can serve two masters, but either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, obviously, and I said this this morning, that if you, um, you know, there are lots of things you can love. You can love two of things, of course you can. I can love Marvel movies, and I can love my friends. And if we get together, I can watch Marvel movies with my friends, and it's a lovely thing to do. I recently watched the new Black Widow movie with some friends. It was very nice, good time. But when it comes to Jesus... He demands our all in such a way. He, he, he desires our allegiance in such a way that it affects everything else that we do. It affects our friendships. It affects our relationships with family. It affects the way we spend our money. It affects the movies that we watch. It affects everything. It, can affect, it should affect everything. It should be the very core. It should be the thing that we're thinking about and orientating our lives around. And so in that sense, you can't serve two masters. Because one master must be the absolute top, and that should be Jesus, and everything else should fit under him. I think also hate uh, hating here it regards our family it means choosing. Are we going to choose to listen to what God wants us to do and the way God wants us to live or are we going to listen to the way our family wants us to live or the way the family raised us to live because whether we like it or not, our family are a huge part of who we are. The way that, you know, your father or your mother or whether you came from a broken home like myself or whether you had lots of brothers and sisters or whether you were an only child, the way maybe you had lots of aunts and uncles around you or maybe you had none. This all affected the person you became. It all affected the person that you have become. But are you going to let, especially when you see Jesus you to something? Are you going to let your family upbringing dictate the way that you behave and the way that you follow Jesus? There's another verse. um, A man says, um, I will follow you. This is somewhere, I think somewhere earlier in Luke, it says, I will follow you, but let me first bury my father and my father. And Jesus says, oh, no, you need to follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead, I think he said. And that's a study in and of itself. Maybe go back and have a look on our archives to see what uh, to make of that, because that's challenging in and of itself. But I think it's similar to this meaning, that actually God is so much more. Jesus is so much more. In comparison, our family aren't just second, but they're last in comparison to Jesus. And maybe you've got family. My father, I use my father as an example, Um, And to be honest, this isn't really what he's like, so I don't know why I'm using it as an example, just an example. Maybe you've got a father who says you should really work hard at your pension plan, or maybe you've got a mother who will say, really work on your career, but maybe Jesus is calling you somewhere else. Maybe Jesus is telling you to sell all your possessions and move somewhere. I don't know what he's calling you to, but you cannot, we, we cannot let our family or those who we hold in high esteem tell us how we should live our lives in comparison to letting Jesus tell us how to live our lives. I see this a little bit with the verse on the screen, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And it says that in Malachi 1 verse 3 and Romans 9 verse 13. And this is before Jacob and Esau, these two uh, men in the Old Testament, before they were even born, it says that he loved Jacob. He sort of had a preference for Jacob. He had a plan that he was going to do through Jacob. He didn't, but he wasn't going to do his plan through Esau. Are we going to do our plan through Jesus? Are we going to let Jesus decide our plans? Or are we going to decide our plans? Are we going to let others decide our plans? We want to love Jesus in comparison. And in comparison, we hate our family or it appears that we hate our family because we care more about what Jesus says. And also this, and I've talked about this a little bit already, this comes to identity, doesn't it? We are our family, you could say. Sometimes Katie might look at me and say, you sound just like your dad. Or you, your brother has the same mannerisms as you. I can never tell if she's insulting me or complimenting me. But are we defined by Jesus? Or are we defined by where we've come from? And do we see who our true father is? It comes down to authority as well. Who is in charge? Our father? Our mother? Do our children dictate the direction of our lives? Does our wife? Does our husband? In Luke chapter 6 verse 46 it says, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? We do call Jesus Lord. But do we do what he says? Malachi Chapter 1, verse 6. I didn't know this verse before, but when I, found, when I saw it, I thought it was... It was I hit the nail on the head. It says, A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? We don't even realise that when we call God our Father but we don't honour him. And we call him our master, but we don't fear him. The next verse goes on to talk about, um, you know, because it says here, you know, the people said, however we despise your name, and, and, it, and he replies, by offering defiled food on my altar. And we don't realise that when we bring our lives to God, we are bringing ourselves to God, and are we bringing ourselves as, as undefiled as, as, as we I suppose we can from what we know? Or do we? only give him leftovers of our lives or we do we give him our all and I find this and I've been convicted about this recently that often I can be worshipping and the things that enter my brain. It's gotta help me. Do we see him as our all in all, our first and foremost, and in comparison even our family? look like they're being hated. we move on to the next verse. It says, uh, verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to carry their cross? So as we all have our own cross, not everyone's cross will look the same. Carry, I was thinking that maybe carry was a really interesting kind of word in the Greek. No, it just means carry, pick up, carry. Simple word, used all over the Bible. Cross, maybe that's more significant. And it it kind of is. It was used three times in the Gospel of Luke. You'd think it was used more, but it's only used three times. The word crucifixion is used a bit more. But the word for cross... um, I can read better over here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23... And towards the end of the chapter, it says, and as they led him, Jesus, away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Because Jesus was so beaten, so scourged in such pain and probably so weak by this point, they had to get someone else in to carry the cross. And often I think we overlook the significance that it wasn't Jesus that carried the cross, but a disciple carried the cross. One of us carried the cross. We can carry Jesus' cross. We can help Him. Do you think that you? Do you realize you can help Jesus? Sometimes we think Jesus is up, and well, Jesus is up here, and we are down here. But we think sometimes He's unhelpable. He actually invites us to help Him. He He created His church to be His body to go out and do, be the hands and feet. We could have sung uh, that Phil Wickham song: um, "Take these hands. I know they're empty, but with you, they can be used for beauty in Your perfect plan." All I am is yours. We can be used. I'm a bit ashamed that I know the lyrics of that song probably better than I know many verses of the Bible off by heart, but side note. Um, we can help Jesus. We, obviously, we don't help him die for people's sins, but we carry his message, the message of the cross. We carry the message of the cross. And what is the message of the cross? Well, criminals died on the cross, so maybe we carry that message that we're guilty that we recognise we need saving. When we come to people, we say, I need saving. I'm guilty. And maybe we carry the story of Jesus' sacrifice, that when Jesus died on the cross, you would say he's the only perfect man and he died for you. I carried the cross maybe up there and then he was nailed to that cross and bled and died for you. It's very interesting I didn't put it on the screen, um, and you can look it up later or jot it down if you like. Colossians 1, verse 7 has a bit of a controversial verse, actually, um, but I think it has a beautiful meaning. It says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So this is Paul writing, he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Now, nothing, obviously, nothing was lacking in Christ's afflictions when it comes to his providing salvation for the world. But something, Paul's saying, something's still needed. I actually need to suffer to show you, for the church, to show you the gospel. And so we, as we bear the cross, as we carry the cross, we are carrying the cross to people and saying, you need Salvation, you need Jesus. And that might mean suffering on our part. My study Bible on this verse about bearing your cross, carrying your cross, just says, you know, I've gone on for 10 minutes about it, but my study Bible said, make a commitment that will lead to rejection and possibly even death. Make a commitment that will lead to rejection and possibly even death. My study Bible obviously felt quite confident to say that as Christians we'd be rejected, but they, they didn't want to say that we'd definitely die, which I can, I can understand. But they said possibly even death. Be willing to go the same way Jesus went. Oh, let's, hope this, let's hope the passage turns a bit um, bit lighter, shall we? Oh, no, it's not going to. Okay, verse 28. Some, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I see three things that we're called to do in, this, uh, in these three verses, and I actually see it sort of repeated in the next parable, you could say, of, of the king going out to war. And that is, one, be prepared. Are you prepared? Number two, have you... Looked into your resources. And three, you considered what your life's work's going to be. What's your legacy going to be? So are you prepared? I'm always amazed at Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, back when he was, before he was even born, when he was with the Father and he created this plan to go and redeem mankind... He knew then, but as he approached the moment of dying on the cross, he went up to the Garden of Gethsemane where he liked to pray, and he was so anxious and so tense to the point that he sweated blood, which is a condition, I believe, where you can be so scared and tense that your blood vessels start to burst, which just shows how frustrated he was. And then God sent an angel to come for him, which is amazing, And in that moment, he said, Lord, take this cup away from me or pass this cup away from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And as we say we're going to follow Jesus, are we saying, okay, I don't just want to be a member of the crowd who follows you from place to place, but I want to be a disciple. I want to be a real follower. I want to walk in your footsteps and also say to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. There's a higher calling, isn't there? As believers of Jesus, we haven't just got... It's not just joining a club. It, we've got a higher calling. And we know what happens to disciples. As we said before, they were rejected and many of them died. Do we have that kind of willingness? In a, when, when people get married, the vicar will often say that you need to enter into the, wed- into the marriage reverently and responsibly, making solemn vows... And they might even say, does anyone have a reason you shouldn't enter this marriage? Okay, he's asking, are you committed to anyone else? Because when we're committed to Jesus, when we commit ourselves to Jesus, we, we, we shouldn't be committed to anyone else in comparison. And there are lots of new students starting in September, and they'll be applying for their student loans and thinking about the 30 grand's worth of debt they're going to have at the end of it. They'll be thinking not just whether it's worth the money for the job they may have at the end, they'll also be thinking, can I study for three years? Am I smart enough? Can I do this? Am I willing to move? Am I willing to... Do I have what it takes? It's a good question. And we need to ask that question when we come to Jesus, when we want to move from just being a member of the crowd to a disciple. And where, does our, where do our resources come from now, it doesn't really say in this passage, I'll be honest. It just says, sit down and see if you've got enough money. If you're, in the, if you're a, um, a king of, of an army, do you have enough people to win? So it, we've got to consider do we have the resources? But we see elsewhere in Scripture where our resources come from. In ourselves, we are weak. But it says, for example, in Isaiah 40, verse 31, should be on the screen. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So how do we renew our strength? By hoping in the Lord. I think it's in Luke chapter 10. Does it say up there? No, it doesn't. It says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Don't worry about what you're going to say as a disciple. He'll give you the words. It also says at the, uh, I think Luke chapter 24, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They had to wait for that power to come by the Holy Spirit. They couldn't really do everything. They, they didn't really have the resources in and of themselves. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are so many more verses we could read about that. And... Talking about our life's work. It warns us, doesn't it? It says, For if you lay the foundation, you know, of the house of the building and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. We want to finish. We want to finish our building. We want to we want to continue to the very end following Jesus being a disciple. We, will not, we don't want to be in out in out. I'm so tempted to say shake it all about. We don't want to be in being a disciple and then being in the crowd and then in the disciple and in the crowd. We want to be consistent. We want to be with him. We want to receive that comfort and we want to receive that prize. In two Timothy chapter four verse seven, it says, "I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." He sounds quite proud of that, and I think he should be. It's hard. It's hard following Jesus. It's hard carrying your cross. And not everyone finished. It says in uh, Galatians 5, verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And in, uh, in Acts 20, Paul has just received a prophecy that if he goes to Jerusalem, that city, he's going to uh, be arrested and probably die. And instead of saying, all right, I won't go to Jerusalem then, that's good wisdom, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20 verse 24. He's so committed to his calling that he doesn't count his life as of any value. Or in a sense, you could say that what makes his life precious is his commitment to Christ. The thing that's precious in his life is his ministry to Jesus. So what's your life's work going to be? Is it going to be the The inheritance you leave your family, financially speaking? Or is it going to be your walk with God? I love it when I'm at work sometimes and I'll talk to people about their faith uh, or their lack thereof, perhaps. Um, But they'll say something like, oh, I remember my grandmother. She always used to pray for me. They'll remember the people that prayed for them. They'll remember the people who were steadfast to the end. As we want to be steadfast to the end. Jesus was steadfast to the end. And there is, again, this passage doesn't necessarily talk about it, but there is a prize to enjoy. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And we follow after Jesus for, this, for the joy set before us. There is a joy. There is, uh, whether the, word, the, translate, where, where the translation mansion is good, Jesus is preparing a place for us. Some people call it a a mansion for us. He's preparing a place for us. And there is a new heaven and a new earth that we will look forward to, as John spoke about at church camp this last week. There are good things to enjoy and look forward to, but the way there is following after Jesus. And he wants us to count the cost. Now, it's interesting in this story, this kind of parable of the uh, in this war, this king, he sees, do I, can my 10,000 men beat the 20,000 men, or can the 20,000 beat the 10,000? But then he says, if not, you go and you try and make peace so that you don't sacrifice lots of men. Quite wise. Um, and that reminded me, and maybe this isn't what it immediately is talking about, uh, but it reminded me of Luke chapter 10, verse 9 to 11, when Jesus sends out the 72 and he says to them, he says, when you enter a town and are welcomed. He's sending these people out to evangelise and to spread the, spread the good news. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the, its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. So you see, either way, the kingdom of God has come near to that town. So our job is isn't so much to, to win the war. Our, our job is to take the message. Our job is to take the message. Whether you tell your friends about Jesus and they reject it or they accept it, whether you make peace with them and they become a disciple too, or whether you, uh, you, you leave them saying, okay, well, I guess you want to remain an enemy. You've at least still brought the message that you were given. It's not about winning, it's about bearing the cross. Not everyone who sees the cross, not everyone who sees Jesus turns and repents, as we know. A lot of people see it, go, maybe that's nice, and then they get on with their lives. But we're taught to bear the cross. And it's interesting, obviously, like I talked about, in, in one scenario, he, uh, he's talking about 10,000 against 20,000, so he, he is waging war, and in the next scenario... We, are, we have uh, peace. Peace is provided. And it, it's similar to Jesus, right? When he died on the cross, he waged war on the devil and he waged, waged war on the demons. But he made peace with us, his enemies. So he made peace and he made war. So I wonder if that's going on here. And I I think in in the same way as we live out our lives, we also want to make war and peace. And it says in Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 11, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Remember where our resources come from. They come from the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It goes on to talk about the armour of God. Oh, I was going to read the next bit. Is it still working? But on the flip side, so whilst we're making war against the evil powers and the evil authorities and the spiritual authorities, we're, taught to, we're told to make peace. It says in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And in Romans 12, verse 8, when Paul gets practical, he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So we're peacemakers, but we wage war. So we want to be prepared. We want to count that cost. We want to see that we can do it. We want to know where our resources come from. Do we get our strength from God? Are we trying to bring our strength from ourselves? I can do it. I can be motivated for God. I can uh, please him. I can be a disciple. No, you can through the strength of the Spirit. Through the strength that God provides. And you can finish. But be careful to make sure that you've realised that it's going to be hard. Verse 29, no, not 29, verse 33, sorry. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In another version it says, those who do not renounce everything they have cannot be my disciple. And I thought maybe if I looked up the word renounce in the Greek, it would be a very complicated word. And it actually it just meant drop, just meant drop everything. And the everything is particularly everything that you kind of had before. It's emphasizing that when we come to him, we drop everything we had before. We don't try and bring everything with us that we have, all of our strengths, or maybe the way that you were raised, or the skills that you think you have. But we just come to him and we say, Lord, I have nothing. I'm going to hold on to nothing, and I'm going to just follow you. Give up everything. As Paul puts it in Philippians 3, verse nine. but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He knows the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, and in comparison, everything he had, had, past tense. He counted them as rubbish. And I think, I hear a huff from Jess. Oh, the screen went down. Um, that word for rubbish, some people say that's kind of like a swear word, probably closer to the, the four-letter word that we talk about for poo sometimes. He was trying to be extreme, is the point. I don't want to swear on camera. He was trying to be extreme. He counted them as absolutely nothing. Some translations say dung as dung. Absolute rubbish. In comparison to knowing Jesus. So we want to drop all we have. In Revelation verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 11, it says, and they, is it chapter 12, verse 11. Oh, yeah. And they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and by the word of his, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The, re, the, the ones who conquered by the blood of the Lamb are the ones who loved their lives, n- who loved not their lives. Do we see how good God is, how good Jesus is? And I wish I had more time to talk about how good Jesus is in this passage This passage is very uh, deep. It's talking about the cost of following him. But obviously, it's part of the greater gospel, right? You know, I've taken these 10 verses and I feel a bit bad because I'm not taking them out of context. I'm reading them for what they are. But it's part of 24 chapters of good news. When Jesus comes on the scene and there's prophecies, or the way it words it is that the valleys will be filled in and the mountains will be brought low and there'll be a highway, a motorway. You can come back to him. There was a great divide between us and God and Jesus has made the way. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Don't be anxious about anything. He has you, he loves you. All these things that I haven't really got to speak on today that I wish I could spend more time on, his mercy, is new every morning. We can only count the cost when we see how great the prize is. We can only count the cost when we see how good he is. And even when we're counting the cost and we're going through life and it's hard and we suffer, the way maybe Paul suffered and was put in prison, it says he was singing hymns in prison, says in the uh, book of Acts. When the, when the apostles were uh, beaten up for telling people about Jesus, they, they left rejoicing because they were found worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. There is, um, there is a joy in following Jesus. And maybe I haven't talked about that today so much. But there's a joy in knowing Jesus. There's a joy in following Jesus. There is a prize to look forward to. But there's a cost as well. And that's what we're talking about today. Because that's the passage I was given. Renounce all and be my disciple. Right. Lastly, we get on to the parable of salt. Verses 34 and 35. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And we can spend a long time talking about what salt is for. Is it just for flavouring food or is it for preserving things? Back in the days when they didn't have fridge freezers and things like that, the salt would preserve meat and things like that. So it needs to do, salt needs to do a certain thing. You buy, if you buy some salt from the shelf, you expect it to flavour your food. But if it doesn't flavour your food, your salt is useless. And what would you do with some salt? You probably wouldn't even bother returning it to the shop. You'd probably just throw it out, throw it in the bin. So this parable isn't so much about salt in a sense that it's about uselessness. And it comes right after this passage because I think it's basically saying being a disciple is good. But if it loses its being a disciple, how can it... He made a disciple again. It isn't fit for anything and it is thrown out. And this is one of those passages that's scary. I want to be a good disciple. I want to be a good disciple, one who follows, one who renounces everything, one who follows after Jesus. I don't want to be in, out, and in and out. Because if I lose my sortiness, if I lose my There's a word I'm thinking of. If I lose my resolve, can I be made salty again? No, I think there is always grace this side of death. There is always grace for us. There's always a second chance for us to come back. But there will come a time when there isn't. There will come a time when we can't be made salty again. We can't be made useful again. I want to be useful for God. Never too late to change. And to really drive this home, this somber message, I know it's been somber, Revelation 3.16 says, because so, because you are lukewarm, this is Jesus speaking to a church, he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot, neither passionate, that's how I read that anyway, neither passionate or cold, apathetic perhaps, I will spit you out of my mouth. I want to be on fire for God. On fire for God. And I've got this verse at the end. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. 2 Corinthians 2.15. I think there's a beautiful goal right there. As true disciples, our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. And that connects, that fragrance connects to the sacrifices of the Old Testament we offer our lives up to God. Use me, God. I wanna be useful for you. I don't wanna hold on to my baggage and my things from my past that are holding me back from a life with you, but I want to be resolved in my commitment to you and be like a beautiful fragrance for you. I'll end as I started. Do we just want to be part of the crowd? Just part of a church? Or do we want to be a disciple of Jesus? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And if we're called to bear our cross, for the joy set before us, we endure the cross. We bear our cross, we carry the cross. There is a joy to look forward to, but a cost that we must accept. Okay, let, let us pray. Let us focus our minds and talk to God. Jesus, you bore the cross. You suffered the ultimate death for us, that we may know life in you. Your body and your blood poured out for us, that we could be in you, that we could know your goodness, know your grace, know your sacrifice. Just want to think of Jesus hanging on the cross, dying, and thinking that He had His children, us, in His mind. He loved us so much that He had nothing back. And my oh God, we think of Your blood poured out for us. We think of your blood poured out for us. We think of your, I always picture the water flowing from your side. And your blood as a sacrifice for us in cleansing us from unrighteousness, making us pure. Lord God, we receive your sacrifice. Lord God, by faith we accept it as our own, as your sacrifice for us. And we know that you have removed the sin from us, Lord God. And we stand before your throne clean. Nothing in ourselves we bring, but we come to you. We thank you that you provided a way for us to remember you, something physical that we can actually taste and see, Lord God. And we pray that it changes us every time that we remember you, and we come back to that moment that you died that you change us more into your image, Lord God, that we would be that Christ-like fragrance for you and that we would set our resolve on you, Lord God, that we would commit ourselves to you and your glory. We thank you, Jesus, that you called us by name. You have such good plans for us and we want to submit our plans to you. I ask this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you for for coming. Um, And I pray that you don't just hear what I said today, but you hear what Jesus wanted to say to you through me. And uh, see you
0: next week.